If you're just joining us, um, my name is Essen Daly. Buongiorno. Been in Italy for a little bit. Uh, thankful to Willis from uh, RUF at Washington and Lee and for Kyle filling in the past couple of Sundays. Kyle kicked us off in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, with a really, really important question. Do you want to please God? Did you know that it's possible to live in such a way that, that we please God instead of displease Him? Um, and that's what Hebrews 11 starts off with, talking about how uh, the people of old received their commendation because without faith it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then the rest of chapter 11 is just going to go on and say, by faith this person, by faith this person, by faith this person lived in such a way that was pleasing to God. And so what does that look like? How do we do that? And, uh, and this morning, probably a good question to be keeping in mind is how do we get the reward that God gives to those who seek him. What is that reward? How do we know we have it? You know, um, let's be sure of, of those things since they are things that have an eternal consequence. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 7. Uh, again, I think that if I did the count right, about 19 times we hear this refrain, by faith, by faith, by faith. And we're going to look at three of the Old Testament saints who have gone before us uh, pick up on their posture toward this world and, uh, and how they were looking forward to the next. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to start in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. But these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Lord, we are grateful for these words, for this good news, that you are not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, you are not ashamed to be called our God, for you have also prepared for us this city, this 
eternal city with foundations that are unshakable. Lord, help us to see and enter in more fully, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, So there's a lot of ground to cover here, but I want to break it up by just talking about these strangers and exiles who are mentioned specifically here. You've got Abraham, or I'm sorry, you've got Noah, you've got Abraham, and then you've got Sarah. And what were they looking forward to? Well, they were looking forward to a better country, not, not what this world offered them, but what the next world offered them, the city that God has prepared for us, because he's not ashamed to be called our God. He wants to be with us, and he has made a way for us to be with him uh, forever in that city he's prepared. So let's jump in and talk about these strangers and exiles. We'll start with Noah, who by faith, right, was, was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So he condemned the world, uh, the evil in it, the violence in it. God said, I'm going to wash the world of all of that you know, mess, all of that muck, and I'm going to start with something clean and beautiful and fresh. And Noah believed him. And his faith was evident, right? He was not simply making a means to avoid a flood. Uh, it was a declaration of Noah that this world was not his home. He was looking forward to a new world. And you contrast that way of living uh, in the world with how Noah was living, and it became evident that he was living by faith in something unseen. He's building an ark, right? His faith was visible. His faith was audible, you know, as you heard the hammer pounding the nails and the saw, you know, cutting the timbers. His neighbors could, could hear his faith. They could, they could see his faith. How are you going to hide an ark? You know, it's like everybody could see this guy's faith. Nothing to see here. No, there, you can't hide that. Um, and, and so people knew, they, they recognized in Noah something different. Um, what if God told you the same thing? Uh, you know, Noah seems unique to us. Uh, the, the ark, the flood, the animals, right? Like that seems like a one-off, but is it? What if God warned you, the same way he warned Noah, what if God warned you concerning events as yet unseen? And you were to spend the rest of your life living in reverent fear, demonstrating your faith in the world to come. What would that look like? Well, it's not a one-off. And in fact, Jesus himself gives us this same warning that there's a future day coming when the world's going to be destroyed again, not by water, but by fire. And he's going to make a new world, new heaven, a new earth that's going to be pure and beautiful and without sin. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Do you believe that that day is coming? Do you believe that's a day where the, the, the cosmic clock is ticking down? We don't know when. We can't say with precision you know, what that day is going to be. We just know that it's coming and we're one day closer. 
And Jesus has told us, he's warned us, right? So if you believe this is true, then our response needs to be similar to Noah's where we live by faith, not, not making this world our home, but the next world our home. And what would that faith look like, right? Noah's faith was evident to everybody around him. Is our faith in the next world evident to the people around us? Can people see it? You don't have to build a boat in, the, in your backyard for people to see your faith. There's, there's, there's radically simple ways, honestly, uh, that people can see your faith, especially kind of in this caustic and divisive uh, culture that we're in right now. For, for God's people, for people who love Jesus and follow him and believe that he's coming back, for us just to genuinely love people would be a remarkable sign of our faith. It would, be, it would be bigger than a boat in your backyard for you to love well people who disagree with you. Just to love your neighbor, even your neighbor who's got different views on politics, different views on work, different views on education, different views on art, different views on you know, what you watch, on you know, what team you follow, whatever. Just love them. Just treat them with dignity. Just, just listen to them. Just, just be curious about why they think what they think instead of like making everything a life and death struggle because, you know, we've got to save this world. And, you know, this is life and death stuff. No, it's not. No, it's not. Life and death stuff is in the gospel. Life and death stuff is about the next world. Now, please hear me. I need to put an asterisk here. This doesn't mean that we check out. This doesn't mean that we just kind of wash our hands of this world and just let it burn. No. You know, Jesus wants us to be salt and light and get in there and bless people and help make their lives better to whatever degree we can. But it also kind of relieves and pops the pressure corks for us where we can love people we disagree with instead of making them the enemy. And if you do that, your faith is going to be bigger than any boat you can build in your backyard. And if you're just generous with your stuff, right? Like, how do we view our things? How do we view the world's things? Are we, are we holding on to them? Are we trying to accumulate and amass just piles of riches and things that are just going to disappear? You can't take them with you. I mean, they're good to bless your family. They're good to bless your neighbors with, but, but does our generosity, does our attitude toward money and stuff and things, does it demonstrate our faith that we are living by faith in the future world that God's going to bring, you know, are, are, we, are we showing people the kind of faith that Noah had, for instance? So, and you can apply this to all kinds of things. Look, it doesn't mean that, that, um, that, we, don't, that we don't grieve sorrows in this world, but, but our sorrow needs to be the kind of sorrow that people go, um, you're, you grieve differently. You, you grieve as people that have hope, hope in something in the future, hope in something that's coming. Like, what is that? What, what's that about? It makes them curious about, you know, wanting to know more. So do you understand, like, like our lives can show people and how we live and how we love and, and what our faith is in uh, that there's another world coming. So that's, that's Noah's life. What about, um, what about Abraham? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And then it says he was living in tents uh, with Isaac and Jacob, who were also heirs of the same promise. Uh, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Uh, so we know here that Abraham 
Abraham was playing the long game. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations. If he wanted earthly security, then he should have stayed where he was, in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where he was living when God called him to a new land. And so he leaves a city, and he goes and he lives in tents, right? He lives in tents with Isaac and Jacob. People who live in tents are not living very, you know, earthly secure lives, They don't have walls protecting them. They don't have cities and infrastructures around them. They're living as nomads, right? Um, A a tent is not a very secure place to be when you're in a tornado. A tent is not a very secure place to be when you're performing a wedding and attending a wedding in a tropical storm. Like we know these things. We just intuit them. They're normal. And so look at Abraham and his, um, all of his descendants. They're living as nomads. They're trusting, they believe that there's this city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, but they're not looking for that city here on earth. They're believing in the one to come, the one that the Apostle John saw and that he describes in Revelation 21. uh, The Spirit carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That is a secure city. This is a a time, you know, of political uncertainty at home and abroad. You know, everything's in turmoil. Everything's up uh, on its head, right? And God is calling us away from the world's fragile foundations and to put our hope and to long for and be on pilgrimage for a city with permanent, eternal foundations to build our lives on the promises of God, the presence of God where He exists. Um, Third, Third of these strangers and exiles is Sarah, and we're told by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore, from Abraham, from Sarah, are these descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And I just think it's beautiful and wonderful that here in, a, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, written in the, in the first century of the ancient Near East, you know, is, is holding out for, for everybody who's going to read this, for the thousands of generations to follow who are going to read these words and are going to have these examples of what it looks like to put our faith in a coming kingdom rather than the kingdoms of this world, we get a woman. We get Sarah. Uh, we get, we get um, Hagar. Uh, we get... We get Women who were ostracized, who were, who were you know, diminished, who were, were, were not valued, you know, who weren't even considered you know, completely human for that matter. And here's Sarah saying, you know, look at her life, look at her faith, look at her hope in God's promises and remind yourself of, of her faith. We are told in Galatians 3 that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are Sarah's offspring, heirs according to the promise, the same promise that Abraham and Sarah were hoping in. So just for context, 
I want you to imagine, you know, Abraham and Sarah in their tent. It's a moonless, clear night. They're looking up at the Milky Way and God's saying, count those stars if you can. And you need to know that part of that promise that the descendants of Abraham and Sarah would be as numerous as those stars in the sky. And if you're here and you are in Christ, if you belong to him, you are Abraham's and Sarah's offspring. Which means one of those stars was lit for you. One of those stars was lit for me. And as they would scoop down and pick up some of that desert sand and it's flowing through their fingers, one of those grains of sand had your name on it. One of those grains of sand had my name on it. And we are his descendants. We are her descendants by faith in the one who would, would come, Jesus, who would come and lead us to a, a better country, right? Um, we're told in verse 13 that these all died in faith, and not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people that speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Everyone is seeking a homeland. Everyone wants a place uh, of identity. Everybody wants a place of security. Everybody wants a place of acceptance. We, we, we have to have this. We long for this. We'll fight for this. And history is replete with people, people groups fighting and, and even killing each other because they have to have a home. They have to have an identity. They have to have a place. It's, it's ultimately why, what the conflict in Israel is all about. Everyone's seeking a homeland. You know, the Jewish history for centuries has been one of homelessness and, and oppression. And you can't read Jewish history and, and not come across an endless list of persecutions. You know, you look at Rome's persecution, you look at the Arabian persecution, even the Christian persecution during the Crusades, right? Kicked them all out of, out of, um, out of Israel. And Israel was reinstated uh, as a nation in 1948, right after World War II. And they had their home back for, after almost 2,000 years of pilgrimage, right? But what happened to all those people who called that little strip of land home for those 2,000 years that Israel was in exile. Now they're homeless. Now they don't have an identity. Now they don't have a place to call their own. And so, look, it doesn't justify the evil and the, the, the wickedness of Hamas. It just, gives, it just gives you some context to understand sort of the Palestinian perspective. Everybody's looking for home. But we need to also see in Hebrews 11 that what, what God is calling us to is something much, much greater than anything the world can offer. There's no earthly home, no earthly country that's ever going to satisfy our desire to belong, that's ever going to give us that, that sense of true and full and lasting acceptance. Noah and Abraham and Sarah are teaching us that, and they're looking for a better country, a, a city with eternal foundations, not temporary ones. And, and we need a better city. We need God's city. Everybody needs God's city. Everybody needs access to this space that Abraham was looking for, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so at verse 15, it tells us that if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, 
They desire a better country, a heavenly one. There's, there's, there's just no such thing as heaven on earth. We, 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 try, we try to make these things idyllic. We try to, to make you know, these Shangri-Las. We, we, we make these beautiful spaces, but everything beautiful has, has a brokenness to it. You can't avoid it. Um, some of you know, you know I, I, the reason I've been away the past two Sundays is I was invited to, to perform a wedding uh, to suffer for the sake of the gospel in Italy. It was awful. Uh, it was, you know, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, so, so if you know the Kilmer family, you know, they've been with us for a long time. And I remember when Seth was running through those halls, you know, a little guy. And he's grown up, you know, in Tamarack. He's a young man now, and uh, he does what other young men do. He, he, he fell in love. He met this woman named Bella online, and, um, and they developed a relationship. Oh, where do you live? New Zealand. Uh, okay, that's a long-distance relationship. And uh, Seth moves to New Zealand, and uh, they continue their relationship got engaged, and, uh, and they were married this past week. So um, I want to show you a, a picture of the wedding. I have their permission to talk. Isn't that gorgeous? This is a, a, an Umbrian estate in the middle of Italy. Like, it just doesn't get any more beautiful. You've got these sort of ancient stairs and the columns, and to the right, you know, 90 degrees, like it would be over here, is this caught uh, this villa, villa, you know, an Italian countryside villa in the middle of wine country, and it's just gorgeous. And there's, you know, Bella and her family, and there's the Kilmers, and it just looks like, you know, insta-worthy. But if you had only seen this little grove, 45 minutes to an hour before this picture was taken. I've done a lot of weddings and I've seen a lot of stuff come up at the last minute, but I've never, ever had a plague come at the appointed hour. Four o'clock comes. It's time when, you know, here comes the bride, right? No, here come the bugs. Here come the bugs and like, boom, 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 plunk, plunk, plunk. And on everybody's clothing and our hair, uh, these little bugs, uh, and the reason why they're falling from the sky is because they've attached and they've mated and they can't fly anymore. They're flying ants that have come out of the ground once a year for 30 minutes. They come out of the ground and they're just swarmed everywhere. There are, I mean, just clouds of, of flying ants all in the air, all in our hair, all over dresses, all over suits, all over everything. Good thing they have these decorative, nice little parasols. So everybody's hiding under parasols, covered in bugs, just, just cascading everywhere. And, and, and the bride's freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. What do we do? Do we go inside? Do we, you know, do we, do we need to punt? Do we need a plan B? And we just decided, we'll wait it out. You know, mating seasons must be over, you know. Uh, and, and sure enough, they, 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 every, all these bugs found their soulmate and they flew away. And we said our I do's and, and we were good, insta-worthy. Is this, was, this a, was this a plague? Was this an Egyptian Umbrian plague? Uh, we decided to put a good spin on it. No, it's a celebration of life and it's a blessing on this young couple. May you be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> I mean, just can, can you imagine these families like planning this destination wedding, you know, America, New Zealand, we'll meet halfway, Italy, it'll be lovely. And all of the effort and all of the expense, all the anticipation, all of, you know, just the building up to that moment, that special moment, and at the appointed hour, 
You just can't have heaven on earth. It doesn't work. There's no such thing as the perfect wedding. Note to self, dailies. Um, there's no such thing as, as, as the perfect family. There's no such thing as the perfect marriage. There's no such thing as perfect kids. There's no such thing as the perfect vacation. There's no such thing as the perfect home. There's no such thing as the perfect retirement. There's no such thing as the perfect job. There's no such thing as the perfect weekend. Like just, we have got to stop looking for heaven on earth. Be men and women on pilgrimage, aliens and strangers in this land, living in tents, so to speak, knowing that this is temporary. Hey, when there, where there's goodness, we'll celebrate it. We'll give thanks for good gifts and, and just come to the Father who gives us these blessings and we'll thank Him for it. But, but we dare not try to find life from those things. They're pointing us to the one who is giving us life. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. Most people if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and, and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Paul tells us in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our home, right? So we're not ashamed because God has given us this home. Verse 16, the end of verse 16 says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, the city with eternal foundations, our true home. The world's true home. But this isn't the only time that we hear about a home that God is preparing for us. Remember Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. It's the night of his betrayal. They've just had the, the, the Last Supper. He's about to go into Gethsemane and be arrested. And he pauses and he wants to make sure his disciples hear him say, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms if it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And then listen to, to how the disciples respond. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Does it sound like Thomas speaking on behalf of the disciples? Does it sound like they know what's up? Does it sound like they're going, oh, good, glad you're going because you've been telling us that you are going to go prepare a place for us? Boy, thank you so much because we've been waiting for this and we've been asking for a long time that you would go and prepare our true home, our heavenly city, make sure it's ready for us because we can't wait to go and be with you when, when, when you go there. They are so clueless. They have no anticipation. They have no expectation at all that Jesus is going to go and prepare a place for them. And that being the case, what does that tell us about Jesus' motivation? What does that tell us about what's going on in the heart of our Savior in that moment on behalf of us, His people? 
He's not being persuaded. He's not being, you know, having his arm twisted. He's not just kind of giving in with a bunch of begging. The disciples are clueless. There is not even a whisper of this. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. What does that tell you about his motivation? It tells us that he wants us to be with him. He wants you there. Not because you've nagged him. Not because, you know, you, you've badgered him. Not because you've hinted at it subtly for years. We're clueless. But he wants us there. And it's his initiative to go and prepare a place for us. And that's ridiculously good news. That God has prepared this city for us. He's not ashamed to have us with him. That's the good news here. And Hebrews, all the way back in chapter 2, tells us something very similar. That he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The Father's not ashamed of us. The Son's not ashamed of us. The Spirit's not ashamed of us. All this talk about going to be with Christ, this heavenly city, this heavenly home, these foundations, raises an important question. The same question that Thomas is asking. And it's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Do we know the way to the place that Jesus is preparing? we don't know the way, how are we going to get there, right? I hope you want to be there. Do you know how to get to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God? Do you want to be in that eternal city? And there's lots of places, sadly, where people stumble in their response to this question. There are some people that think, well, yeah, sure, the way to go to where God has prepared is you have to kind of measure up, right? You've got to be moral, you've got to be spiritual, or you've got to be conservative, or you know, any of these things that, that are somehow going like, to let God know you're serious about this, and he's going to let you out. Okay, you measure up. You can come on in. And there's sort of the other side of the campus is, well, no, no, it's not, any about, it's not about being religious, it's not about being moral, not about being conservative. No, God is not like that. God just invites everybody. He just accepts everybody. He doesn't care. It's like he's just kind of thrown up in the doors and gone away, and whoever wants to come in and come in, I don't, he's indifferent. He doesn't care. Both of those perspectives are tragically wrong. Tragically. How does Jesus answer Thomas? Thomas is going, we don't, we don't know how to get there. What does Jesus say? He says to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty good answer. This means that the way into the city is not some creed or morality or just a carte blanche you know, thing. The way into the city is through a person. Because you think about the picture of heaven, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. There's, there's the city, right? It's got its walls, its foundations. What's in the center of the city? the throne. Who's on the throne? It's Jesus. So if you want to get into the city, you come to Jesus. And, and in another way of saying it, like, paradise isn't a place, it's a person. It's a relationship with him. It's knowing him. It's loving him. It's being united to him. 
And when you're connected to him, you're, you're in, you're, you're accepted because he has loved you. He has given himself for you. So this is, he's not indifferent to whoever comes in. In fact, there's this book, this book of life. And, and, and if your name is not written in that book, you don't get in. How does your name get written in that book? How do we know we're united to Jesus? Well, we come to him. We, we believe in him. We trust him. We trust in the one who was born under political oppression, who had to flee with his family to Egypt as a refugee, who was uh, marginalized for being from Nazareth, oh, those Nazarenes, and who died as a traitor and an enemy of the state crucified on a Roman cross like all the other you know, filth of the world. This world was not his home. The heavenly criteria for getting into the city is the grace of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. He hung on a cross, despising the shame of the cross, and then was seated at the right hand of the throne of God to take away our shame. God is not ashamed of us because Jesus bore our guilt and our shame. It's removed. It's gone. You're clean. You're beautiful, you're holy, you're acceptable to God because Jesus took away all that was sinful in us and presents us before the Father as a bride, pure and clean. And we come into his city to celebrate this marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah 54 says, fear not. You will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded. You will not be disgraced. You'll forget the shame of your youth, right? If heaven is not ashamed of us, why should we be ashamed before the world. Why should we care, just kind of to, to, to close this out, why should we care so much about what the world thinks of us? If anyone on earth is ashamed of us, why does that matter so much? Do you, do you remember the old uh, Disney movie, The Princess Bride? And they quote Eleanor Roosevelt, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. That's actually pretty true, but it's the wrong basis for for why we shouldn't feel inferior. No one can make you feel inferior without God's consent. And he has made us clean. He has made us beautiful. And it is lamentable, of course, when somebody significant in your life makes you feel ashamed, like when a parent shames you, when a, when a spouse shames you, when, when a child shames you, when a friend betrays you, those are lamentable things. Those, that sorrow is real. But can, I just, can we just keep the big picture in mind? If, if Jesus tells you to lift your chin up, why are we hanging our head? If Jesus says you have no shame in heaven, why do we let what the world speaks over us matter so much? God is not ashamed to be called your God. Let me close with the rest of that C.S. Lewis passage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. I have to let that identity be my priority. I'm a citizen of heaven first, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside or shouted down, right? I must take it, I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country 
and to help others to do the same. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for this calling in Christ to come not just into the new Jerusalem, not just into our, our heavenly city, but to come, to come to you, to come to Jesus. You are the presence of God. You are paradise. And so we, we, by faith, we, we are yours. We believe in you that you took our shame away on the cross. We believe in you that you give us your righteousness. We believe in you that you've prepared a place for us with you because you're not ashamed of us. Lord, lift our heads, we pray. Uh, lift our chins away from this world and all it offers us, vain, vain, vain promises as they be, and all of, its, um, all of its condemnation because it just doesn't have the power to stick. And help us to trust in you, uh, our God who loves us. In your name we pray.